Hi, I'm Graham from LSAT Hacks. And I'm Steve Schwartz from LSAT Blog. And we're here to answer your LSAT questions. So let's get started. Our first question today is from Trevor. And he said, what should my plan be for the next two months? So presumably he's two months out from an LSAT. Uh, as it stands, I plan to take two tests a week, thoroughly reviewing each one. I will also walk myself through the reasoning in every question and examine my diagrams in Logic Games. Is this sufficient? I want to utilize my limited time wisely. How can I gain the most insight into the test and the areas in need improvement? Is there something I can do on a weekly basis that you think will help me most? By something I mean outside of taking practice tests or even practice sections. So the elements here are two months of study, two tests a week, thorough review of everything, and they want to know if that's enough and if there's any other thing they should be doing. What do you think about this? Yeah, well, two months out, there's time to do a lot. Two tests a week and thorough review probably wouldn't allow him to have too much additional time to do any study if the review is thorough enough. Yeah. I do disagree with one of the premises of the question, though, as, as we tend to do. I will walk myself through the reasoning in every question. Mm. I'm not sure that's useful or productive. I think maybe focusing more on the questions that specifically give you difficulty or you get wrong or have trouble with that alone could be valuable. But what are your thoughts, Graham? So first of all, I think two tests a week is actually too much. Um, at least I don't think, like you said, I think you're not going to really have time to do anything else if you thoroughly review this. But you should be doing other things like drilling specific weaknesses and so on. And if you're merely just take test, review, take test, review, it doesn't leave time for those extra exercises, which I think are more valuable. You also risk, so you risk two things. One, you risk like just getting bored of same thing again and again and maybe like burning out a bit or more probably you just won't actually review enough in practice you know you say here like i will go through the reasoning every question is in my diagrams of logic games it's like it's all very optimistic but i just don't see this being held up for like eight to nine weeks uh week after week yeah i i don't think it's necessarily sustainable to study at that level especially if you have any other obligations at all I think that two tests a week is fine if you're doing nothing else, but if you're like most students, either you're in school or you're working, I've worked with a lot of students who are paralegals and they're often working long hours and they barely have time to do one exam a week. So two tests a week really sounds like an ideal scenario where the student has no other obligations at all and can just focus full-time on study. But there is a lot of value, as, as you said, in drilling by type, for example, or being able to do more detailed review. And so focusing on specific questions that you have trouble with is probably a better use of time than doing two exams, maybe reduce it to one. Yeah, I think you raise a good point about uh, outside obligations. Like I think if you are doing an intense schedule, like, you know, if, if what we say in the podcast isn't going to convince you to like lower the level of tests and like you're just going to do it, then you absolutely have to like think about what are all my obligations and maintain like measure your stress level measure like am i actually reviewing thoroughly uh do i have time to do this or do i need to reprioritize because some people can just like churn through a bunch of stuff and they've got no obligations and their parents are like maybe cooking for them and like they don't have any chores to do and they actually just have a ton of free time and so this might be sustainable but you really got to examine like why you're doing it and like is this actually effective um so they also ask is there something else they can do on a weekly basis that will help you the most? What do you think is like the most helpful thing someone can do that isn't, say, 
taking prep tests, reviewing, or drilling? That's a great question. That covers so much of what prep involves. I think aside from LSAT study, if we cover practice test review and drilling, I think maybe it's time to either go back to basics if there are fundamentals you want to brush up on, like reading an LSAT book or articles or videos or something like that, like using explanations, for example. But beyond that, I would say it's all the outside factors like getting your getting your life in balance, getting the work LSAT study balance, as well as quality of life. So exercise, diet, time for relaxation, those things, those are things you could manage on a weekly basis. So if you want to eat well, you could do batch, batch cook on the weekends, all your meals for the week so that you have something healthy ready for yourself and you don't have to spend time cooking that could be devoted to studying or maybe having a daily relaxation or meditation practice or daily or at least semi-daily exercise could be valuable as well. And that though all those things will help you a great deal. So having those elements of your life in check, sleep is another one, but those, those will help you most. Those will help you a lot. And so it's worth spending time on those and making sure that your life is organized well to optimize those elements. Yeah, definitely. I think you raise a great point about like, both keeping things in order, but also like that it's not the, the amount of time you can study for the LSAT depends on other stuff. And if you can make your cooking or your shopping more efficient, then you can probably get more effective study hours. Um, what I would say for like the most helpful things, I mean, I think those are very important. Some other helpful things you can do are either repeating material or uh, getting like a study partner who can go over stuff with you and sort of force you to get outside your own head and explain yourself and will ask you questions that like you hadn't occurred to you. These are things that I see that help people make like a larger than average improvement that can sometimes help break through a plateau. Yeah, agreed. And that study partner, I think a study partner is great for accountability and to help you help explain things to you and you can explain things to each other and you can learn by teaching them. And if you live in a major city, you could probably find someone in person, but you could also have a study partner that's remote over Skype or something like that. You could probably find one on Reddit, I'm sure. Yeah. So they're yeah. definitely people are people are out there. You might feel alone while you're studying with just your busy schedule, but there's a tens of thousands of other people studying right now who and many of them would definitely be open to a stu- being a study partner and you can help each other. Yeah. Yeah, forums are a great place to find that. I also want to touch on one more thing that you mentioned earlier, uh, the walk myself through the reasoning in every question. And I want to say that, like, broadly speaking, I agree that, like, for me personally, when I review these sorts of tests, like, not just the LSAT, but if I was studying for, like, the GRE or GMAT, say, I would generally just review the ones that gave me trouble. But I want to raise, like, one interesting example of a student that I worked with who, I think she improved from, like, the low 140s to, like, the high 160s or something. So, you know, one of those, like, outlier improvement stories that is just, like, what everyone wants to get. And I asked her what she did, and she said, well, she reviewed every question. And I think this is interesting to mention. Um, man, I'm not sure how practical it is. And I, I've talked to some people like this, and there's often something like quirky like that. Like one person said, like they wrote explanations for all the questions they found hard, which like can be pretty like tiresome to do. Reviewing every question is tiresome to do. And I think like a lot of people that like say you're just reviewing every question, thinking like if I do this, then I'll improve. Like may not help, but like she might have done it out of sort of compulsion or just like, I don't know, like I, like 
in other words, she may have been doing something useful in that review. And so just to the question of like, what can I do that will help me most? I guess to go up one level is like doing something that's sort of like feels very thorough, but while you're doing it, it gives the feeling of like, I'm really learning something while I do this. If you can find that thing that like works for you, it might be writing explanations. It might be uh, reviewing every question. There could be something like that that will help you sort of fill the gaps in the knowledge. But I don't want to prescribe a specific thing because 95% of the people listening to this, if you just reviewed every question, that would be a mistake. But I suspect that like for some people that if you're thinking like, should I do this? But like if it feels like it's actually producing results, it actually might be like one of those things that helps a lot. That's a great point, Graham. I think that for some people, those sorts of practices really can help. And I think a sign that it's helping is that it's difficult. And it's difficult, but you're getting you're getting something out of it. And you may, you might not like doing it because it's forcing you to work. But what you find most difficult is probably what you absolutely should be working on. And so I, I've also I've gotten this question before, reviewing every question. Is it worth it? And I would typically say no, but if you're gaining insight from it, then of course it's valuable for you. And to yeah. touch on the no. idea of doing, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 carry on. The one other thing I was going to say is that writing out explanations for yourself of questions that you have difficulty with is something I do recommend to students. And I think many of them have found it extraordinarily useful because it really forces them to articulate in their own words why they got something wrong and what their own thought process was. And then they can articulate why the correct answer is correct. And you can't, which is great because you can't really understand something until you're able to articulate it. That's the measure of your understanding if you can explain it to someone else in your own words. And so writing it out or talking it through with a study partner could be valuable to gain those insights and make that progress. Yeah, and that's a great point about using difficulty as the gauge. Because like, let's say someone's like 165 and they're shooting for like 175 plus to get into one of the like very top schools. And like, should they review every question? Like, almost certainly not. Because even at 165, you understand like almost everything on the LSAT. There's just like little stuff left. But if you're starting at like 142 or whatever, like that actually probably is something in most questions that you actually don't get, even if you get it right. So that advice becomes more practical in that case. Um, but once you get higher up, it's not going to be difficult and it's not going to be challenging. Yeah. And I think, I think it's definitely useful at the lower end, especially. And I just wanted to give a couple of examples from like my own studies that I feel are using the same mindset that may help you like make an analogy to the sorts of things in your LSAT practice that you should be doing. Cause at least for me, cause like, because I'm high enough at the LSAT, it's hard to like give actual LSAT study habits, but these are two things in like other areas that may help. One is like when I'm reading, if I see a word that I don't know, I basically just always look it up either in like a paper dictionary or on my Mac, you can press like command space bar for the dictionary or on the iPhone, you can look it up really easily. So like, I just, I never let a word go by that I don't know without looking it up. And as a result, I just have like a really, really high vocabulary. And most people just don't bother for certain things, but that's how, that's the difference between like, like good at, at English vocabulary versus just like, you know, most everything. Um, and the second example is I'm learning kanji, which is like a, the Japanese form of writing. And they have a certain stroke order. So like not only are you supposed to draw the lines in the right way, but you're supposed to draw them in a certain order. And I've noticed when I'm, I use like a flashcard program where like I can draw them in and it says if I'm right or wrong. 
and the flashcard isn't going to correct me about the stroke order. But I did learn that separately, and I've noticed every time I'm drawing, if I start like draw a line wrong, and I know I've got to write like I no, I stop myself, and I redo the thing, and I make sure I draw it in the correct order because I want my brain to learn that. So even though it's like a trivial mistake, and I know the thing, and I got the flashcard right, I don't accept that like small error margin on something that I know is wrong, and so I want to review it to get it right. Uh, that's a great uh, concept. I think just to zoom out for me, I think the idea is that you're not accepting a particular error rate. Like you want to reduce those errors and focus on the areas that you might be less than perfect. Yeah. So if and you're so it's going towards the difficulty rather than moving away from it. Yeah, exactly. So if you're reviewing every question and you're still getting difficulty, then you're still like getting sort of an error rate there and you can review it with a sense of like, well, I'm just not going to tolerate this. But as you're getting better, then like merely reviewing every question is not going to be helpful. And you have to instead seek like, wh where's the remaining difficulty? And how can I apply this like, constant improvement process? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. And that means, if you're getting questions of a particular type wrong, you're doing more of those drilling them and analyzing them. And one more thing that came to mind related to working through the reasoning in every question is that even on questions you get right, maybe there was a way you could have solved it more efficiently, solved it yeah. more quickly, especially if this becomes more apparent for, for games, for example. Maybe an easy game you could do in under six minutes and then you'd have a time bank to use that time for the tougher questions that come later where maybe it's a 12-minute game no matter what, but you have the time saved. So reviewing the easy questions and not second-guessing yourself on them, figuring out your pacing there could help a lot as well. Yeah, and I, th I think to that point, having some sort of like symbol for like struggle or something that you mark on the question, like a star or a box or whatever, but something consistent so that you can see after the fact like, oh, I was struggling here. So I got this right, but I should still review this or review it more thoroughly to figure out like what was the more efficient path. Yeah, yeah, marking it off, coming back later, definitely the way to go on that. All right. You want to move on to the next one? You think we hit this one yeah. enough? All right, so here's one. How do I improve my stamina? No matter how much I improve my study sessions, I can't improve stamina. So I guess that's referring to, that could be a couple things. It could be a full-length timed exam, but this person did say study sessions, so that could just be how much time they spend studying in a day. What, mm. are, what are your thoughts on this, Graham? Well, I think within the test itself, there's two elements to stamina. One is like actually training the thing itself. So, you know, training a five or a six section practice test. And the second is figuring out what's making it difficult because there are certain activities you do and you could basically do them for like quite a long time and it's not very difficult. But like a hard thing, you get tired faster. So those are two aspects. But for what you raised about how to improve my stamina during the day, I think you had some good advice on that earlier question about like how to like sort of rearrange things to just sort of free up energy and space elsewhere in your life. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. I think that if, you, if you're just talking about what you're getting done on a daily or weekly basis, yeah, having those things in your life in order, sleep, diet, exercise, meditation, those are all really helpful and they'll make you more fresh and awake when it does come time to study. But for full-length exams, it's going to be increasing the number of times you do a three section, three sections back to back, then take a break, then do two more. 
And so doing five section exams or even six sections is important. It's something that comes with time as you do more of it. You build your tolerance. And also at the same time, the questions are becoming easier for you, hopefully. So that'll make it smoother and less taxing to to do long study sessions or full-length exams. But I would say if you're just doing a study session, you probably don't want to do four hours without a break. It's okay to give yourself breaks here and there and to spread out your study maybe a few hours before lunch, a few hours after lunch, if your day can be organized that way. Yeah, I think that's important. Like there's there's training for stamina and then there's just general training and they're not the same thing. And the more breaks you have in the general training, the easier it'll be to like do more in a day. Um, I would also say that taking a day off at least one day during the week can be helpful because one of the things that can drag on stamina is burnout. Um, and then if you're just feeling like generally down, you're just going to have less capacity to do everything. And so time off can help you do better, even though it's very counterintuitive. Like everyone nowadays just thinks they got to like work, 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 and that's the only way to get better. But rest and recovery is a vital part of, of improvement and just general function. Yeah, agreed. I think that not enough students take days off, but burnout is real and it's terrible and you're putting in time and you're getting less results than if you had done less in the first place. So yeah, I think that your stamina improves if you're fresh going in. So that involves just like the other things I mentioned, taking just taking days off here and there is okay. You can take off even a few days a week if you're studying pretty hard on the days that you actually study. But I think that for anyone, no more than four to five hours in a day, period. I think that if you're really focused in your studying, you're not really going to get more than four to five hours of productive study time out of what you're doing. Yeah, this seems to be a constant. I read this interesting book. I can't remember the name of it now, but basically it looked at like just different authors and how they worked and like all of them reported about the same, like they had about max four hours of work in a day, like hard, you know, real work. Um, not just sitting at your desk for eight hours, but reading Reddit some of the time. Um, like we've all got only about four or five hours of real work in us. Yeah, exactly. And it becomes eight hours because you feel like you didn't get much done because you've been intermittently interrupting yourself with your phone or the internet or getting up for breaks here and there. And so if you just removed all of those things and actually just blocked out study time, then that would have a major impact. I'm a big fan of Cal Newport and one of his books talks about how people basically, there's two ways to get a lot done. It's to either go on a retreat where you're holed up for, let's say, a few weeks or a month and you just devote yourself full time to your task, in this case, LSAT study, and you aren't working on anything else. And that's a great way to get a lot done. You, can, you can't do that 12 months a year, but you could do that for a week here or two, maybe, depending on what your life is like. But the other way is to just block off times in your calendar. So if you use something like Google Calendar, you could block off 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. is nothing but study, and you're not allowed to do anything else during that period. That could help you get a lot done. And then you take an hour break for lunch, you come back and do a few more hours. You could also break up those two-hour blocks with small five-minute breaks. There's a technique called the Pomodoro technique that can be useful to really you know, drive through those those you know, procrastination tendencies and kind of brush them off to the side. What are your thoughts on this, Graham? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've personally gotten huge benefit out of both uh, sort of retreats 
and also the Pomodoro method. So I vouch for both of those. And also I've like dreamed of running some sort of an LSAT retreat in Hawaii, say, or somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know if I'll ever like manage to arrange that, but I feel it could be an interesting thing. Um, but yeah, I think, I think all of those are good methods. I, I just had a few other small thoughts on stamina. Uh, one is for like general life management about like freeing up energy for the LSAT. One valuable thing is just to like sit down somewhere with like a piece of paper and write down all of your obligations. So like, what are the things that you're doing during the week, including like, you know, simple stuff like groceries and cooking and it's like, what are all the things you're doing and what are all the inboxes you're applying to or what are the, I don't know, just sort of write down all the stuff that you do and that you have to do and see if there's any of it that could be eliminated in order to free up space. Because at least I find in my own work, like the strange thing is like cleaning the toilet seems to uh, fill the same mental bucket as like doing an LSAT podcast. As in, like, they're both, <laughs> like, I'm not on the couch relaxing in either scenario. Um, and the more, like, they're all just tasks that I have to get done. Because with with the LSAT, it's the same as with, like, running a business like ours. Like, you're not going to a place of work and then leaving in most cases. So you just got, like, a jumble of tasks that you have to do. And the more of them you can eliminate, the more space you free up. Um, but the other two thoughts I had were just on, like, stamina sort of, like, in the moment of the test. One is, I feel some people just sort of, like, push through the feelings of, like, fatigue and think, like, like they've got to go harder, um, which may work in, like, some physical sports where, like, time in the specific moment of returning something matters. You know, you see all these, like, Nike commercials or whatever, like, someone pushing themselves to the limits. But it actually isn't very effective in, like, a mental thing with the LSAT, I don't think. If you feel, like, extremely fatigued while doing a question, it's a good time to just, like pause take a few breaths and bubble your answers and give your brain like a small bit of downtime it might it's giving you a signal like it just needs some time to process some stuff it's probably got like too many things in the short-term working memory and just briefly decompressing i find can like really help relieve the tension and therefore make it less difficult and therefore enhance your stamina yeah agreed our brains are not computers and we can only take so much yeah and the other aspect is that the brain needs energy to do what it's doing. And so you may find that like certain foods during that 15 minute break improve your stamina for the time after more than others. So I would experiment to see like what you might need. Uh, I don't actually have any specific recommendations because I, I tend not to snack, but sometimes I'm extremely fatigued. Like maybe like a piece of fruit might help. Uh, do you have any thoughts on like food that might be of use here, stamina-wise? Yeah, I mean, what I typically hear from people is that they'll eat something like a banana or a granola bar, and those maybe I guess the sugar is a is a boost that could carry you through the last two sections, sections four and five. We don't care about the writing sample anymore, but yeah, <laughs> those. But the sugar boost could help. It could also caffeine could also help potentially. So. You could have that, your, your coffee, if you got hot coffee, it's probably cold and you might not have been permitted to bring it in anyway, but you can bring a 20-ounce bottle and so maybe you could have a 20-ounce cold cold brew coffee or something like that. That might help. Again, you always want to experiment with anything at least a few weeks or a month before the test day just to see how things affect you. So for example, coffee is a diuretic. That could be problematic if you have something with, with sugar and then it makes you crash afterwards. That might not be good depending on the timing and 
know, people's bodies are all different. There's no one size fits all approach. Yeah. So I would just agreed. try different things and see what works for you. Yeah, experiment well in advance, but your your brain is part of a physical machine, your body, and it has physical needs. So fiddling with that stuff can help at the margins with stamina. Yeah. All right. You want to move on to the next one? Yeah, sure. All right. So Anon says they took a practice test and scored only one point higher than the score I achieved on the actual exam. And I feel I am far better prepared now than I was then. This is all to say that I'm feeling like all my efforts are in vain and that no matter what I do or read, nothing is translating into a significant score increase. It's as if something is seriously lacking and I've yet to discover it. What do you suggest I do? So I can see, actually, no, uh, what do you think about this? Well, yeah, so there's a, there's a lot there's a lot in here. I would need to know a bit more about the situation in order to give much of a recommendation. But part of it depends on how you studied before. And figure, if you haven't gotten any increase from your diagnostic, let's say, then there's still there's room for improvement. Everyone has room for improvement. Everyone can go at least a few points just by learning some of the basics. Because logic games, for example, are so unfamiliar initially, so I would I would be curious what materials this this test taker is is using, and what they may have yet to try. Because of course something is lacking if you've only gotten one point score increase period. But yeah, I would need to know more. What do you think, Graham? So I my first impulse is to avoid overgeneralizing from one single score so and they say that this is like then i achieved on the actual exam so i'm guessing they took a test they may have made some improvement on the way to that and now they're like studying again for retake and they've just got one point higher but the question is like you know let's say you're av- let's say on the test you got a 155 and then you've been averaging like 159 on average and then you get a 156 like that doesn't mean anything um everybody's scores fluctuates everything we do in life fluctuates we just normally don't measure it the way that we do with the lsat so like a single test like really doesn't matter. You only should judge your score on like a range of tests. That's my first thought. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. And then my second thought is that hmm, I think like it's easy to put too much into your score and like so the score is the outcome. It's not the like thing itself. The thing itself is understanding the LSAT. So if you're like taking a test and looking at the score and taking a test and looking at the score, like, I mean, it does matter, but you should really be focusing on like, am I understanding more now than I did before? And when you, when you say something like, no matter what I do or read, I don't know, I'm I'm getting the sense when I hear a lot of these, that someone's sort of like looking like outside of their own efforts. Like they're looking for like a, a book or a high score or something that shows them the result that they want when really it comes from mastery of the material, which is more of like an internal thing. And it's something that like, you should judge like, am I doing better or worse on this question type? Or do I feel like I understood that question better than I did when I looked at it before? Or am I making some measurable improvements? And if you make measurable improvements on like specific things, your score will go up. Um, But if you spend your time like, looking for tricks and focusing on the score, then it can just be dispiriting. Now, I mean, 
I'm reading some things into the students' questions. I just want to say, if they're listening to this, I may have, like, read them wrong and they, like, something else may be going on there. Um, but that was, like, one possi- possible scenario when you see something like this. I think that is fairly likely, though. I think this person saying, no matter what I do or read, nothing is translating. And sometimes it isn't about reading. Sometimes it is about, as as you indicated, like it's more about the internal work, which to me would be the student is doing practice problems and analyzing them and reviewing them and looking to analyze their own thought patterns. The answer is not going to be in reading yet another LSAT book if you've already read a few. They're not all necessarily that different from each other, assuming you're reading something that's of of fair quality. Mm -hmm. But even if you feel you are better prepared than now than before, that could be the case, but maybe it's not coming together with pacing or endurance. So your actual understanding could be better, but with your sample size of only one exam, it didn't carry over because you still have to work on your timing. So I would say you, you're, you're, you're at, you're, where you stand right now is really better indicated by your most recent five practice tests, all, and you take the average of those, and those were all completed over the past month or so. So you have a, a fairly got good indication, but as you were saying, Graham, like there's there's a three point range on either end. So 159, if your 159 is your actual score, your quote unquote true score, maybe one day you get a 156, one day you get a 162, and all of the, that entire six point range is possible, and the LSAT is no better than that as a measure. So I would say take some more exams, but also. Focus more on your work and your review process. Yeah, and I realize now there's like a one other word in this question that made me think this way. When they say like, I feel I am far better prepared now. And I don't know about you, but like, I don't feel the LSAT, like you don't prepare for the LSAT. You get good at it. You learn the skills involved in it, but you do prepare for like a college exam. Or we prepared for this podcast, but that's not what assuming the podcast is good, that's not what makes it good. Um, those are just sort of like necessary elements or you might prepare for a trip. Um, but it's not preparation, it's actual like skill in like understanding the words that the test is telling you. And I feel like, like, so they're saying, they feel like something's lacking and I've yet to discover it. Like it, I feel like it might just be a mind shift, mindset shift in this case that what they have to discover is that internal process of like anal- like analyzing a train of thought and analyzing their strengths and weaknesses and thinking like, what skills do I need to improve? That's a great point. I do see the LSAT as being more skills-based and you're, you're building these skills. And you could say that you're training to some extent, but you prepare for test day by packing your gallon-sized Ziploc bag. But yeah. the LSAT, you're not you're not preparing for it and then it's over. Like you have built the skills and then you will have the skills forever after. And they'll carry forward into law school and into your career and into everything you read. But they don't, they don't go away. It's not like you finish with, you're finished with your Ziploc bag and you toss the Ziploc at the end of the exam. Yeah, like I see all these threads on Reddit where sometimes people are like, does anyone else feel that like the LSAT is like changing how they have conversations because they start noticing someone's making like logical flaws and they're like, eh, oop, no, no, don't, don't annoy them like that. <laughs> but they start, <laughs> they start like seeing it all in real life. And uh, like that's what's involved with like actual like skill improvement 
on the skills that, that you're, you're right. They do stay with you. Yeah. And if you build your understanding of the exam and the skills that it's testing, you will be better. You will be more ready. And that will translate into a significant score increase when you bring it all together. But there is a, a shift in your focus for your study when you go from just focusing on accuracy alone to then focusing on your pacing and finally your endurance. But it's a, it's a multi-stage process. And each of those stages requires its own, its own unique angle as, as you structure your prep. But if someone is in a situation where like, let's say, because, you know, we talked about prep test averages, but let's say like actually their prep test average, they've taken multiple of these and they really are just like one point higher and they have been trying to like analyze their thoughts, but it hasn't been working. Um, what would someone do to sort of discover how to, because, you know, it's like an, un- an un- unknown, unknown sort of thing. Like, how would you suggest someone break out of that bubble if, like, they are actually doing sort of the right thing in the sense of trying to analyze, but it's just not working? Yeah, sure. Well, other people can be helpful, and those can come in the form of explanations. They can come in the form of a study partner. It could come in the form of a tutor or a coach or a course. But getting more outside input, preferably personalized outside input could be could be valuable and if personalized is not possible then i think you know using one of the many written or video explanations out there you know we have both of us have quite a bit of them and your site's devoted to that pretty much lsat hacks yeah. so going on those resources can be helpful to gain a better understanding to see at least how other people have done it but if you can discuss with someone else that's also a really good option because then they can point out flaws in your thinking and through that interaction and conversation it can make a big difference as well yeah that's that's what i was thinking like outside feedback it, feedback is what lets you improve a skill by saying yes that was good no that was bad and so that can be extremely helpful and uh the other idea is just like you've got to do something different i don't know what it is because i don't know what you're doing if you're in a situation but somehow like you you do have to make a change and one thing I find that can be helpful is, apart from using those outside resources, like maybe take a day off, take like a notebook and just sort of like write in it and try to analyze like why you've been making mistakes, what's hard, what are the things that you've been doing, what has seemed more useful, what has seemed less useful and try and like analyze your situation, um, go to someplace like quiet or alone where you can just reflect for a few hours and try and like give a whole overview. I find sometimes when I need to like change something, this can bring some clarity. It lets your brain like sort of make explicit what was sort of bouncing around in there and might give you some insights too for what to stop and what to shift and do. I like the idea of, of taking a break and taking some quiet time to analyze. It can help you break out of your previous thought patterns and help you see the question a different way or see what you've been doing wrong that you could do differently. A lot of times we get so caught up in our habits that we that we forget that we've boxed ourselves in, that we're looking at the question or the else at a particular way and taking some time away from it and changing, maybe even changing your study setting can, can change things for you and help you see that question differently. Yeah. And one thing I found that helps students see the exam differently is when they, I encourage them to write their own LSAT questions. 
mm. especially it's especially easy for logic games. It's not I wouldn't say it's easy actually, but it's relatively easier for logic games because they're more mathematical and symbolic. So you don't have the same ambiguities of language that you do for the other sections. But if you write LSAT questions or write maybe a bonus answer choice for or bonus question for an LSAT question, that can help you see the exam more from the test maker's perspective and help you notice some of those traps that they're laying for students as you learn to write your own traps. Yeah, that's extremely valuable. Cause like, and I don't know if that fits into the category of feedback, but it's like an outside perspective. Like you're suddenly looking at everything in a new way and it'll get you out of your rut. I think that's a great idea. Um, one other thing that occurs to me and I feel like will be like a broken record on this podcast, uh, but sleep, I, I can't even remember if we mentioned this earlier in this podcast or some other one, but I find if I'm trying to do like, you know, routine things, it doesn't really matter if I've slept like six and a half hours or seven and a quarter. I need about eight hours personally. Um, but I find if I'm trying to do like hard new things, just like nothing happens. I can have like a month where like I don't really accomplish anything out of the ordinary if my sleep is off. And so if you're stuck in a rut, it's worth examining like, am I actually sleeping enough? How much am I sleeping? You can get like sleep tracking apps on your phone and just like see how long you're sleeping. Um, but in terms of improvement, you probably want about eight hours sleep um, or however much you'd sleep if you had no alarm and everything else was fine. So I think it's worth checking that to see if that is a problem. And on a bigger picture, it's also asking like, is something wrong somewhere? Like is something outside the LSAT, is there anything in my life that is would maybe be impeding this? I think sleep is the main thing that can stick someone on the plateau, but it's worth checking if like something is like a major stressor or whatever, and then can I do something to improve that? Sometimes you can't, but there are some situations where if you just, again, take some quiet time, think about it, analyze it, you can say like, oh, well, actually, if I rearrange this and change that, then actually I, the problem would shift. Yeah, I'm really glad you emphasized that because sleep is huge. And I think that most people are probably chronically sleep deprived, especially all the paralegals who work late hours. Yeah. I've noticed that even for exercise, for example, physical exercise, you need to have a certain number of hours, probably eight or more, in order to have muscle muscle growth and muscle repair after any form of exercise. And I think to some extent the same is true of the LSAT. Your brain is making new connections, as, as vague as that is to say. I'm sure it's happening in some way as you know, things go from your short-term memory to long-term memory and you start to make all those connections between different types of questions and you integrate the explanations into your own understanding. And that all takes time. And also, if you're sleep-deprived, then your willpower to study and to maximize what you get out of your study is not going to be there. LSAT study is not easy, and we need to have all sorts of reward systems in place to, to feel good about it and to put in the time. And in order to be at 100% or like 110%, you've got to have your energy level up. Yeah. Extremely important. Uh, do you have anything else in this one, or do you want to go on to the next? No, let's go on to the next one. All right. Uh, All right. So this one, um, how often, if ever, should I diagram conditional reasoning on any given logical reasoning problem? Yeah, this, I think this will be a much shorter one than the previous question. But my short yeah. answer is not very often. But if you're still learning di uh, conditional reasoning, then 
more often than you would once you've already learned it. Yeah, I think I think that's fair. I'd say that most students diagram far too much on logical reasoning questions. I recommend diagramming very few of them. In particular, sufficient assumption questions most yeah. most often. And then also inference questions like must be true and some parallel reasoning questions. But the vast majority of cases, I don't think it's going to be useful because most logical reasoning questions involve informal logic. And yeah. so writing out the evidence arrow conclusion, I don't think it's going to do very much for you. On the other hand, if you're truly making inferences or taking contrapositives, then it's more likely to be useful. But I think students often just write things down assuming it's going to unlock the question for them when in reality it doesn't do very much. Yeah, and I've definitely had some students come to me that are like, I'm not sure how, like, I've been trying to diagram this and it's just really hard. And I look at them like, there's not even any conditional reasoning on this question. Like, <laughs> Yeah, just, just don't. Just don't <laughs> diagram. Um, yeah, but I would say along with the list you listed, uh, some principal questions are diagrammable, especially the principal application ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say like the ones on that list, like I don't diagram all of those questions. It's like, if I'm diagramming, then it's one of those question types, but I'm not necessarily diagramming all of those ones. Um, but there's, there's a second case. So I mentioned like, if you're not as good at it, so, and this might not be a thing for time conditions, but there's say like, there's some flawed reasoning questions where sometimes they'll have a conditional statement and the flaw is that they get it backwards. And like, once you have a good understanding of conditional reasoning, like there's no reason to draw one of those. You're just like, oh, they've done conditionals and they've mixed it up. Let's find the answer. But if you're still just like, like one challenge on conditional reasoning is actually learning to draw it correctly. And when you're still in that phase, then the more do you do it and then you get feedback afterwards if you drew it right, uh, the better and the faster you'll get at diagramming. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think that you diagramming can be useful initially for for some questions, but over time, you might want to move away from it as you deepen your understanding just from your initial read. If you get yeah. proficient enough with the indicator words, you may find that you don't need to all the time. Yeah, because the thing is with diagram, like it's just a tool. It's not like a magic thing that like adds anything to the question. It's just a more concise way of representing a relationship that the English that like it's already there in the English of the question. So, to, first of all, to diagram correctly, you have to understand the English. And so if you understand the English, the diagram doesn't add anything. What it does do is it gets variables outside of your mind, releases your short-term working memory, and maybe lets you see a connection that might not have been obvious otherwise. So, gets them out of your mind, maybe lets you see a connection. Those are, like, the two reasons that I would ever draw something. But I don't draw it to, like, understand or to solve the question. Because if it's just a single statement, I usually just read and I understand it, and that's it. Yeah, for the most part, I don't think it, it does a whole lot. And I also think sometimes students run the risk of diagramming every single answer choice as well, which I think it takes far too long. You don't, nobody has time for that, to diagram the stimulus and five answer choices. Sometimes in explanations, we can include those just for students, to, for the sense of being comprehensive. But what I typically re- recommend for a case, like let's say you're diagramming a parallel reasoning question, you might diagram the stimulus, but then mentally map each of the answer choices onto your diagram of the stimulus. There's one question that comes to mind for me. It's somewhere in the set of 52 to 61 where 
the the question involves April rainfall and May rainfall. Uh, maybe you remember what I'm talking about, but basically there there's multiple conditional statements, and so I found it useful to diagram there, but I wouldn't diagram all the choices in addition to that. Yeah. I don't remember that question, but I agree with the the principle behind what you're saying that I will like parallel reasoning is probably the best example of this, like you said, and I would diagram the stimulus and then maybe like two of the answers. I usually skim through the answers and I'm trying to eliminate them based on like uh, say the conclusion had a conditional and then if a n- answer has like a sum in the conclusion, I'm like, well, that's probably not right. Like it's not a hard eliminate, but I'm like, I shouldn't diagram this until I identify the most plausible ones, diagram those, and then choose one if they're right. Yeah, that could work. So I think one thing that may help people give some practical guidance, like how often, how many questions on a section would you say you diagram on average? Wow. Yeah, probably three to five or four to six at most. Probably fewer. Probably yeah. just a couple. Like off the top of my head, I'm thinking like two. Yeah. Is, is pro- like it wouldn't be impossible for me to diagram more. Uh, it wouldn't be impossible to diagram less actually, but probably two on average. And I feel like, I feel like on the newer LSATs, like less. I'm not sure if that's actually the case or not. Have you noticed anything on like the newer ones? I haven't thought about it that closely just because I recommend diagramming so little and I diagram not very much myself. But that would make sense to me if it were the case, given that LSAC seems to be moving away from more mechanical approaches to more intuitive approaches that actually require you having the skills rather than blindly copying a technique. Yeah. Um, but I will say just like to close in this point that on the questions where I do diagram, it's like logic games where it's actually the most efficient, fastest method. Uh, like the, in the cases where it is needed, like it actually is extremely useful. And also like the thought processes you gain in learning to diagram, even if you don't make you better at understanding the English of the other questions. So while we're saying like, oh, no diagramming, no diagramming, this is not us saying like, oh, you don't even need to learn to diagram. We hardly use it and it costs you nothing. Because even though we're using it on like two to four questions, there might be like 10 questions where the skill that lets us diagram is actually making us go much faster through it. Yeah, agree. There are certain things you've got to be able to do. Like you've got to be able to take the contrapositive You've got to be able to link conditionals together. You've got to be able to deal with those words like unless, except, until, without, and translate those into conditionals so you can link them together. And there are some questions where diagramming is, I would say, virtually necessary for 99% of people. Like in there's one exam, I think it's one question, I think it's test 58 with the, the handmade wigs. Like it's a sufficient assumption question with handmade wigs with handmade components and they use human hair and all that. Like that question has so many conditionals and you can, through using diagrams, implement a formula that lets you arrive at the correct answer and predict it on your own. And that question drove students crazy back when it was administered. And it was because there was really no good way to solve it without diagramming it and knowing the formula. But you can't do everything in your head. We have limited memories, and especially with all these unfamiliar terms and you have like a half dozen variables, you're going to want to write stuff down. Yeah, definitely.
All right, you yep. want to move on to the next one? Yep. So someone asks how to simplify diagramming all the rules and inferences for grouping in-out games. Uh, first, uh, first of all, when I say in-out, like, what do you mean when you say in-out? For me, it's like if you've got a whole bunch of rules and they can all be connected together. And it's, like, not a thing where you draw, like, group one, two, and three, usually, where it's more just, like, you're either in or you're out, and there's, like, those two states. Yeah, I would say it's it's primarily just we have selection, and it all comes down to the in versus out, and there's not really anything else going on. Now, all the some, some of the rules might link together, but in some of the newer games, I've noticed that not all of them link together. Yeah, that's true. So you could, you could have multiple chains. Yeah, and I've noticed also, like, they're having you use this skill in, like, more mixed games where, like, there's other stuff going on. But I just want to clarify that when I'm talking about, like, a pure grouping in out, I mean sort of the, the birds in the forest is, like, from, like, test 34 or 33, is, like, the archetype of this type of in out game. I've seen other classifications where they've got more stuff in in out. So I just want to clarify that for my answers here, I'm talking about things that look like the birds in the forest game. And so the student asks, so they're asking, how do they simplify? They said, I found that I spend a good chunk of time writing out all the rules and inferences along with their contrapositives. I'd like to learn how to streamline this. So what do you think, Steve? Yeah, so if we narrow specifically to games similar to the Birds in the Forest game, then there is definitely a, a clear way to solve these. And there are many like this. For example, there's also... In Test 45, there's the Photographs game. In Test 58, there's Volunteers at a Summer School or something like that. And all those games, what they have in common is conditional rules that where you can link together all or almost all of the rules into long sequences where you can easily see all the inferences at a glance. And the way to save time on this is to not write anything extraneous. Everything you write down ultimately becomes part of your main diagram and you you build your main diagram as you go by linking rules and their contrapositives onto those two chains. Yeah, exactly you do right. do something similar, Graham? I do exactly the same thing. And just to give an example, let's say we had like a statement that said C arrow T. And then let's say we had a statement that said uh, Q arrow R. And then let's say we had a statement that said T arrow Q. So that's C arrow mm-hmm. T, Q arrow R, T arrow Q. Now they've given them in, in that order, but how I would do this, I would draw C arrow T. And then in the third rule, you've got a rule that starts T arrow Q. So you just put that on the first thing. So you don't just draw the rules in order of one, two, three. You draw them in the order of connecting things. So that's C arrow T, T arrow Q. And then the second rule is Q arrow R. So you end up with C arrow T arrow Q arrow R. Exactly. I'd, re- I'd, re- I'd recommend the same. Yeah. Hopefully that was easy enough to follow by audio only. This would be like way easier if we were drawing it, obviously. But um, what this does is it just you get out of that whole thing of like drawing out the rules and contrapositives because to take the contrapositive of this, you just flip the whole thing and you end up with, I mean, what did I say? Not R arrow, not Q arrow, not T arrow, not C. And it's just like one nice. step. Nice, great. Yeah, it's impressive you can do that in your head, Graham. Like, I don't know if those, those are pretty arbitrary sounding letters. I'm not sure you use this example very often. Yeah, some, but, someone who's like listened to my other stuff may recognize that in, in logical reasoning, I often use the example of like all cats have tails to teach uh, like conditional logic. So I was basically like using one sentence as like etched into my brain. 
um, <laughs> to lower the cognitive load there. Yeah, yeah. And the, the key takeaway for me that I also recommend to my students as well here is you don't have to do the rules in the order given. You can yeah. skip around and link things as you go. So if the second rule is just Q and R, but our first rule did not involve either of those variables, that's an indication. Let's skip this rule and come back to it later when we can hopefully more easily be able to link it back to the rules we will or the diagram we'll have by that point. So if the Q hour R rule is best done last, let's do it last. There's no LSAC has no obligation to give us information in the order that is most useful for us. Right. They love to scramble things all the time. Exactly. So if I've drawn like C arrow T on the board, then I'm just going to keep going through the rules until I see a C or a T. I'm not going to draw anything until I get to another rule that has them. Yeah. Another thing to look out for when, with regard to the order in which LSAC pre pre presents things is to, we, when you have a conditional rule, look for the conditional indicator. Sometimes they'll have a whole list of rules, but the sufficient condition is actually pre presented second. So we could have if Q then, we could have R comma if Q, which would be Q arrow R. But we don't want to diagram that as R arrow Q. We want to be clear that the conditional statement is reversed in from the order that it would be useful for us to have it in. So we have to rearrange. There are a number of games that have played on this assumption that students have where the sufficient condition will always be first. Or there's one game like Prep Test 31 Game 2, the CDs game, where most of the rules are conditional, but the first line contains two rules that are concrete rules separated by a semicolon. Like use pop is in, semicolon new opera is out. That's not a conditional, but it might appear to be one for someone who's rushing. So be careful with those sorts of things. They do love to mix us up with some of these harder conditional games. Yeah, you will sometimes also see a contrapositive in there. So like say there was like CROT and another rule said something like uh, not L arrow not t if you take the contrapositive of not l arrow not t you get t arrow l so you can connect that up to the higher one and get c arrow t arrow l um right so what i suggest is when you see the same letter like let's say you've drawn a c arrow t and you want to draw something anytime you see like a c or a t in another rule even if it's negated or seems backwards or whatever that's a sign to like take some time. You could maybe draw that rule separately. This is like the one intermediary step. You might draw that separately in a separate area, take the contrapositive and see like, does this attach now? But never just draw it without attaching it. Like just assume that if the same letter is mentioned, you can attach it somehow and then put it on. Yeah, absolutely. If you have the, a variable repeated in multiple rules for one of these conditional in out games that we're talking about, there will almost certainly be a way that you can link them together, whether it's continuing on with the end of a chain like a requires b requires c or it might take the form that each of a and b together are sufficient to require c so you could have a rule like a requires b and then you could have the rule um, not c requires not b and there will still be a way to link them together inevitably yeah and i would say for any listener who's confused at this point uh even i'm having trouble following my own and steve's conversation here <laughs> because this is so abstract and it's very hard to do orally and without words so like if um the specific examples made no sense don't worry the main principles were 
don't draw all the things separately. Just draw them combined. Uh, look for things. Look for rules that have the same variables as the rule you've already drawn to see how to attach them. Take the contrapositive somewhere else if necessary in order to attach it. Watch out for things presented in the opposite conditional order, as in like the if in the second part of the statement, but that's actually the sufficient condition. And watch out for things that were conditional, were not conditional rules, but maybe seemed like they did. So you're mainly connecting to conditional rules. And lastly, I would say that though this may seem like, oh, these like smart LSAT tutor guys, like maybe they can do this, but I can't. So I'm just going to draw them separately. Um, I have never once seen a student unable to do the more streamlined method once I presented it to them. So they've got this big mess of things on their page. And I was like, well, just try drawing that rule and see what connects. And then as long as I like made them only draw something when it connected, like everyone, including people in like the 140s and the 150s, were always able to do this. So it's not, this is, there are some things on the LSAT that are like super smart advanced strategies. This is not one of them and anyone can do this. Yeah, this is, this is easier than it sounds. And maybe we would have been better off like writing this down in some way to share it. But basically, if you're confused about it, we both have explanations for games of this type. And so if you go on our sites and look at our explanations, you'll see us actually walking through creating these kinds of chains step by step. Yeah, I'm going to like add maybe like one of our explanations to the show notes for like the birds in the forest game or something so that people can like look and actually see the examples of us going through it. I think that'll clarify. Yeah, that's a, a great idea. We could definitely include that there. We have articles, we have videos, and there, there's stuff, resources to to make this clear with a variety of examples because this is one of those games that has repeated in so many different forms. I also yeah. have a free game I wrote that's of this type on my website as well. So if, if you don't have any exams and you want to just walk through a game like this, they're, there's, they're out there. Yeah. Um, all right. Is that, uh, was there anything else on that question? Or did we, I think that pretty much covered it, eh? Oh, right. Sorry. Yeah, one that, more thing. Yeah. Go ahead. No, go ahead, please. Yeah. The one final thing I would say is just like, do this over and over and over again, including with the same games until it's back of your hand, second nature. Because this is one of the most learnable things on the LSAT. And there's a small number of games that are basically the same in terms of the setup. I mean, there's differences like in a couple of the diagrams don't connect or you got a little quirk here and there. But it's one of the most learnable skills. But they're very hard games before you learn to do this. So you can flip something incredibly difficult into an easy strength just by repeating it. This, this is more of like a practice thing than a theoretical understanding thing and you can get very good at this. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons it's so useful to drill by type. I actually have an article on, on my website, Seven Logic Games That Repeated on Future Prep Tests, and this is category one. The Birds in the Forest game, test 33. The Fruit Stand game, test 36. The CDs game, which is a much harder version, test 31. That one's evil. Evil Yeah, that one's game. the worst. It's the one, it's the one in Legally Blonde <laughs> as well, actually. But yeah, they, they repeat these a lot, but there are some that also, the ones I mentioned were all in the 30s, but then there's one game from, I think it's test 13, that's repeated almost identically in test 32. So it's mm. about 20 exams separated, and if you're not doing them by type or you're not doing test 13 because it's really old, obviously, then you might not see those connections, but they are present. And by doing lots of games and by doing them in categories, you can make those connections more obvious. And so it'll be more familiar to you when you see it later. Because obviously 
any of these games in isolation will be quite difficult if you've never done anything like it before. But if you've done similar ones, then at least you're more practiced in the patterns and the inferences that you're going to make. And you can make it, you can make the birds game an, a game that's under six minutes if you're proficient in the rules and connecting them. It is possible. It just takes yeah. practice. Yeah, I highly recommend you check out Steve's post. Uh, that's like learning the things that are likely to repeat is one of the like the highest value things you can do on Logic Games. You can add that to the show notes too. Yeah, thanks, Graham. All right, so what do you think? Should we leave off here? Yeah, I think I think that's pretty good. So uh, if people have questions, they can find us on our sites and send us an email uh, that we'll add into the podcast. So Steve, where can people find you? And also if they Again, want to follow updates, where should they go? Yeah, sure. So folks can find me. I'm Steve Schwartz at the LSAT blog. The best way to stay in touch is to join my email list. I'll send out updates there and Graham for you. So for me, I'm lsathacks.com. And you can go to the about page and send an email on the contact form there. Uh, I also have an email list that you can stay in touch on. And if you want to follow me somewhere on social media, it's either Reddit, where it's reddit.com slash r slash LSAT. I'm the moderator there. Or you can follow uh, my Instagram. It's Graham underscore Blake. And either of those, you can get in touch. And thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time. Thanks.